The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes, taking a long look at life under the sun. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ecclesiastes 9, verses 1 through 12. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the, un- to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all, for man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time, when it suddenly falls upon them. This is the word of the Lord. So at Sacred City Church, we believe the best way to preach, period, is going verse by verse through books of the Bible. To literally sit down for months at a time and study one book of the Bible and study it verse by verse. And we've been doing that for the past three months or so in the book of Ecclesiastes to get you caught up really fast because we've had other stuff in our sermon, in our time this morning. And so I know my sermon time is short, so I got to get going. Um, Here's what's going on. Solomon, the son of David, is writing this book of wisdom and he's writing it about life under the sun. And Solomon is a philosopher extraordinaire. And so he's really looking at life without heaven in mind, Technically, what does life look like under the sun? And he's going through it, and he's, te- he's an old guy looking back over his life, and he's trying to teach us how to live life well. And so that's why we're in the book of Ecclesiastes, and that's where we're going this morning. Uh, we're in chapter 9, so if you open up your Bible, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, you can follow along. Um, and I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump right in. So Father, I thank you for this book, and I thank you for this chapter that was written that you had it written for our good, for our learning, for our life to be lived well under the sun. And I pray that you would help us understand it this morning 
and apply it to our life and see our life in a new way maybe. I pray that as the preacher, you would think through my mind and, and you would speak through my vocal cords that people would hear all of you and none of me this morning, that you would really uh, enable us to learn and grow from you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we all live life on a rising scale of difficulty. We start out in the wombs of our mothers where everything is provided for us, nothing is asked for us, and every single one of our kicks are rejoiced in. We move on learning to crawl, to walk, to talk. We fall down, we bump our knees, right? We climb trees, we pick up a sport, we learn to read, we learn to write. Things get more difficult as we move on. Our parents set rules. Listen to your mother. Don't hit your brother. Be kind to your sisters. Work hard in school. Do your best at everything you do. As we grow, we start to get challenged by coaches and teachers and mentors. You can do better. You can work harder. You can expect more of yourself. And as we trust them, we learn that they are right. And our ability to handle ourselves and achieve things rises. We compete. We win some. We lose some. We learn that life goes on. We win trophies and earn medals and contribute to the team. We get graded on our efforts in school. A, B, C, D, F. For all our parents to see and all, our, the world, all of our friends to see, and ourselves, it comes back, the paper comes back with the big red letter on it. We get to know how we're doing in life. It's a hard reality. We graduate, hopefully. We go on to college or the workforce, and guess what? Things get more difficult. There's an American myth that says, someday, life will get easier. Many of us dream of some time in the future when things will finally settle down and get easier. We dream of the day when our kids are grown. They're out of the house. And we're no longer changing diapers. Or toothpaste is finally not smeared all over the sink and all over the mirror. Someday soon, down the road maybe, we can retire. And once we retire, oh, that's when real life's gonna happen. It's gonna be easy then. The reality is, you take a long look at life, a true and honest look like Solomon does, the reality is life just gets more and more and more difficult. We live life on a rising scale of difficulty. When the kids move out and retirement comes, you will have another difficult season to walk through quite possibly your most difficult season yet. You're distracted by the kids now. You're distracted by their career ambition right now. It's been said that there's three stages to the human life. You got zero to 20. This is where you're, you're meant to find out who you are. You're meant to kind of create or build an identity. Find out who am I and what unique thing do I have to give back to the world? Then you have your 20s to, to 40. This is where you are. You begin to establish, put down roots, your life and your family and your career. This is where you begin to learn that the secret that 
The secret to life is life is meant to be given away to those whom you love. And to do that, you have to make some lasting commitments, right? You put down roots and say, I'm going to stick to this job and I'm going to stick to this house and I'm going to stick to this family. And then you begin to pour your life out for those whom you love. God, family, friends, the mission of God. And then you have this third stage of life, which is kind of 40 and beyond. And here you are learning to live out the reality that you lived in the second tier of life. You're learning to give yourself away in greater and greater measures. You give yourself away to your family and your friends and your church. And then ultimately, you give yourself away to God in death. And dying well has got to be the most difficult experience we will ever experience in life. And that's why today's sermon is so important. And this text from Solomon might legitimately change your life forever. I can honestly say that it's changed me. When you look at this text this morning, we're not going to go, we're not going to cover the whole thing. Again, if you were, a, if you've been back, if you're here a few weeks back, you'd know this, but let me cover it really quick. If you were a Hebrew poet, or a Hebrew scholar, you would notice that our text today has a chiastic structure. That means it goes A, B, A, and B is the point, all right? This is an ancient literary technique used to help readers see and understand the point the author's trying to make. So the point of the passage or the lesson is in the middle of the section with the supporting proofs before and after it, okay? So this morning, Solomon is giving us a death sandwich, Okay? But death is not the point, all right? Think of death as the bread and how to live within the reality of death as the meat of the sandwich, as the point of the passage. Solomon wants us to know how to live life well in the valley of the shadow of death. Given the reality that all of us are going to die, the good, the bad, the holy, the unholy, the Christian, the non-Christian, how should we live in the here and now? And what we're going to see is going to be shocking for many of us. I don't say that lightly. I think if I took a poll this morning and I asked you, being mindful of death, how should we live our life? A large majority of us would say something really spiritual. Something deeply religious. If you knew what you're going, you know, if you knew you were going to die tomorrow, what would you do? I'd probably pray all night. Probably read my Bible a lot. Probably go to church. Probably call the pastor. Why? We you often hear this. Someone gets diagnosed with cancer. They say something like, "I realize that most of the stuff in my life isn't really that important." I would focus more on my spiritual life and less on my physical life. Would you be surprised to learn that this is not the teaching of Christianity? God created the angels to be spiritual. He created mankind to be human. That's different than spiritual. Human beings 
He created us out of physical matter and then he breathed the breath of life in us. So we are both spiritual and physical and meant to be like that forever. This is why he's coming back and giving us a new heaven and a new earth and we're not just gonna live in heaven forever. See, we also see this when Jesus Christ came and he put on flesh, he was incarnated and he came into our physical world. Jesus put his divine stamp of approval on real physical life. Jesus Christ was not crucified and resurrected to make you more religious or more spiritual. He died so that you could be born again, listen, to live a more humane life, to be deeply human. To be human once again like Adam and Eve were before the fall. See, this is why when Jesus was resurrected, he didn't come back as a ghost He came back with a new physical body that his followers could touch. He looked a little different, but he had a physical body. This is why Jesus, some of the oddest text in the New Testament is when Jesus comes back from the dead, sits down, first off, he walks through doors, okay? They're just in their locked door. Jesus comes walking in. We're like, oh, it's a ghost. Then he sits down and eats fish. I don't understand this. It's a new created body. It's a new realm of physicality. But he's putting his divine stamp of approval on physical things. See, too many people over-spiritualize their life. And in essence, what they're doing is they're trying to live their life more spiritual than Jesus himself. I have this quote from C.S. Lewis. I have a lot of quotes today because the topic needs... You might just think it's my opinion, so I've had to get a lot of guys to back me up, okay? Here we go. C.S. Lewis. There is no good trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be a purely spiritual creature. That is why he uses material things like bread and wine to put the new life into us. He's speaking of the Lord's Supper. We may think this rather crude and unspiritual. God does not. He invented eating. He likes matter. He invented it. Now, So I think many of us over-spiritualize our life, but there is also a danger in the proverbial falling off the horse on the other side, right? You can also under-spiritualize everything. You can live life like matter is all there is. This is where much of our world is at today. All that matters is sex, money, food, travel, experience. Solomon won't let us do that either. And so we learn from Jesus What we learn from Jesus is that being saved by grace alone, by faith alone, and Christ alone is actually a rehumanizing process. Because we've been spiritually made new in Christ, we now are able to enjoy God's created world without worshiping it, without idolizing it. This is actually something that Jesus taught and what has been called the greatest commandment teaching. You get most of us probably know this. An expert in the Old Testament comes up to Jesus and and says, what's the greatest commandment? When you look at all the Old Testament, what's the one thing that I need to do? What's more important than all? Jesus says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Now we hear that and go, okay, That's a spiritual thing. Love God with all, how do I love God? It's gotta be a feeling. It's gotta be something in my soul that just, uh, towards God. 
right? Something deeply spiritual. I can't really put my finger on it. But then Jesus says this. And a second is like it. So the guy didn't ask for the second commandment. Guy asked for one commandment. What's the most important thing? Love God with everything. Okay, cool. I I just got this feeling towards God. I got that. Jesus is like, but there's a second one that's just as important. Well, what's that? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Whoa. Now that is not spiritual at all, right? Right? How do I love my neighbor? That's all physical. I share meals with them. I help them out when they're sick. I watch their kids. I shovel their walk. I mow their grass. I don't kick their dog. Right? Now, what's interesting is Jesus is teaching us that we are to love God with all our mind, soul, strength, and heart. We are to love him supremely above all else. But we are still to love other things. We are still to love our neighbor. He gave us our neighbor to love, and we can't love God without loving our neighbor. In fact, our love for God, when it meets our neighbor, looks like love for neighbor. Did you hear that? Your love for God looks like love for neighbor when it meets your neighbor. That's what it looks like. So here's my question. So what does love for God look like when it meets life? Real life, flesh and blood life, this earth life. What does love for God look look like when when it meets food and friends and family and work? What does love for God look like? Too many times I've heard preachers preach that love for God looks like like separating yourself from the physical world, thinking less about this world, distancing yourself from your kids and your family in order to love God in a greater way. John Calvin says, in despising the gifts, we despise the giver of gifts. And so the answer today that we're going to learn from Solomon is this. How should I, what should I do when I meet God's gifts given to us? Work, family, food, life. We should have a deliberate enjoyment in those gifts. We should have a purposeful merriment in those gifts. We should have a determined delight in those gifts. Solomon here, so I'm skipping the death sandwich part, right? I'm skipping the bread for the most part, and I'm going right to the meat of the passage. In the reality of death, here's how you live life well. And Solomon is going to give us four new old ways to be human. Okay, that's where we're going. Four new old ways to be truly human. They're new to us more than likely. They're old They're old to him, right? So why don't you open up your Bibles to chapter nine, verse seven. We're going right to the passage. We're going right to the meat. What should I do to be human? What does this rehumanizing process look like now that Christ has been raised from dead? Verse seven, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. First thing you do, first thing to do, first new way to be human, have a dinner party. 
First thing he says, go. Now why, why? That's, this is a command. This is a wake-up call. There is, he's saying there's no time to waste. Yes, you're going to die someday. Yes, you have anxieties and you have fears and you have uncertainty. What should you do? Have a dinner party. Stop your complaining. Stop nursing your anger. Stop brooding about your problems and your inability to fix the people around you. Get over your anxiety. He says, go. This is a command to throw a party. I'm just going to let that sit. Out of all the things I've written in my, you know, in seven years at a church, the most controversial thing I've ever written is our stance on alcohol at church. It's very, it's never been, I mean, they push back, but it's never been disproven. Most people are so religious when it comes to alcohol. Is there danger in it? Absolutely. Is there danger in food? Absolutely. Have you stopped eating? You can answer that. No, you haven't, right? God is commanding us one of the things he's given us in the reality of a dark and depraved world that's, that's a lot of difficulty going on. One of the things he's given us, a gift of being human, is dinner parties. He says, go throw a party. Now listen, not some kind of, you can fall off the horse either way, not some kind of drunken, gluttonous affair, rather a God-centered meal with good food and good wine and a merry heart. It means it's lighthearted and jovial. He commands us to enjoy it. Go eat your bread with what? Joy. Enjoy, drink your wine with what? A merry heart. It's fun. People are having a good time. So many churches, good night. They think it's a sin to have a good time. They think it's a sin to enjoy the life God's given us. Christians should throw the best parties because we know the giver of all these good gifts. See, we have a good time and God gets the glory. The food is good. I chase the sunlight up to the sun, right? I chase the gift up to the giver. And I think God gave me this steak. Oh, thank God for it. You're vegan, you'll have to figure that out. It's a lot harder as vegan, right? <laughs> whatever that thing is you're chewing, I don't know how you enjoy that, but whatever. <laughs> figure it out. Listen what, look, listen what St. Augustine says, okay? He loves thee too little, there we go, who enjoys not thy gifts, which thou hast given to enlarge our minds and expand our hearts and enrich our souls and increase our strength, that we might love thee fully and supremely and expansively forever. He's telling us that the God has given us good gifts so that we could enjoy those gifts and worship God through it. So we're enjoying God by enjoying his gifts. Is this what you do when you sit down at the dinner table? You thank God for the good gifts he's given you and the good friends and the family around the dinner table. You say, God, you gave us my taste buds. Thank you for that. You gave me this good drink that's in my cup. You gave us this good food that's on our plate. See, some people think that 
this is some like this is like the pagan slogan let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die it's not like that at all see that slogan is shallow and selfish the philosopher Solomon, his advice is much more profound. Look what he says in verse seven. Go eat your bread with enjoyment and drink your wine with a merry heart for because God has long ago already approved of what you do. In other words, God not only created human beings with the need for food, but he provided food with great variety for their enjoyment. He meant for us to enjoy food. He meant for us to enjoy wine, strong drink, whatever it is. Psalm 104, 15 says this, the Lord gives wine to gladden the human heart. Is that not just like a mic drop on this discussion? For me, it is. The Lord gives wine to gladden the human heart. Can you abuse it? Absolutely. If you abuse it, should you avoid it? Absolutely. But you don't despise the gift. By despising the gift, you despise the giver of that gift. He says, he gave us oil to make the face shine, bread to strengthen the human heart. So if we enjoy our meals, God approves. Have people over for dinner. It's a human thing. Long ago, God approved because he created us to enjoy our food and drink. And so God is pleased with us when we enjoy his provisions. When it's this text here, it says, so for God has already approved of what you do. There is a hint in the gospel here. There's a hint looking forward to the gospel. Pastor Ray Orland says of this verse, quote, how good do you have to be before you can allow yourself to enjoy the human life God designed for you? What kind of view of God do you have if you think he's in heaven going, I gave him those gifts, they better not like them. Really? You don't have to earn your humanness. God created, God gave it, God approves of it already right now without you proving yourself worthy This is why he gave good food to the just and the unjust. He gave it to all. He's a good father. The whole point of our existence at all levels is God proving himself good and glorious. It's the first one. Rehumanizing process. First step one. Have some people over for dinner. Have some good food. Have some good drink. Secondly, let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Now, that is not a command to only wear white, okay? We would look like a cult if you did that. Please don't do that, okay? Solomon is telling us it is not more spiritual to dress poorly or not wear makeup. He says, no, dress nice when you can, look clean, They wore white in this time because that reflected the sun. It was in the desert, so it was cooler for them. Even splash some of that moisturizer on your face every once in a while, right? Put the oil on your head. It's a good thing to enjoy God's gift of beauty, fashion, and creativity. Should we be modest? Of course. Should we use wisdom? Definitely. But ugly ain't holy, okay? It's just ugly. 
shocking how many people think there's guys out there right now, you know, saying that they're making their own clothes and this is somehow more holy. Not more holy. Your clothes are more holy, actually. It looks ridiculous. No, no, no. Solomon says, take care of yourself. Take care of yourself. Enjoy the life you've been given. Enjoy the gift of fashion, the gift of beauty. Do it. Verse 3. Or not verse 3. Number 3. Verse 9. Enjoy life. Oh. This should be Christianity 101. We should just circle this. Enjoy life. What does it mean to become a Christian? It doesn't mean now you get to wear your mean face all the time. Okay? Becoming a Christian doesn't mean now we know who everybody else is wrong and we're the right ones and so we point our fingers. No. Solomon says, enjoy life. We were down in the village of East Davenport a couple weeks ago for the big criterium, guys with big pickets and saying God hates these people and God does all this. And I just, I, I, it took a lot of the spirit to restrain me. Enjoy life. I'm looking at these guys like, do you enjoy doing this? Is that enjoyable to you? Solomon says, enjoy life, keep going, with the wife whom you love. Step three. Get married and enjoy life with your spouse. Those two things are together. Get married and enjoy life with your spouse. The, the married with children idea of marriage is a, is a garbage, worldly fiction. This is, a, this is a great command that God's given us. I love it. Parents, you know you give your kids these commands. You take them to a park. Go have fun. Right? Like that's a command. God has put us on this earth. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. He's writing, Solomon's writing to his son. He's writing to a man here. Go enjoy life. Someone needs to tell people that these verses are in the Bible. Enjoy life with your spouse. Now, yes, it's real life. What is this? This is in a death sandwich, remember? Right? Yes, real life is hard. It's hard work sometimes. Solomon isn't being sappy or sentimental. That's why he says, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. What does that mean? Our life is, he's talking about vanity, vanity. It's like a vapor. That's what it means. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. It's short. It's monotonous. It's full of frustration. But it's also beautiful. It's also a gift. Marriage is a gift given to us. And we're meant to enjoy the wife that God has given us. Take her on a date. Combine step one and step three. Efficiency, see? Take her on a date where you have to have buttons on your shirt, men, okay? The cutter has to stay in the, in the, in the bedroom, right? Take her on a date, get a nice glass of wine, enjoy some good food, and enjoy your wife. Do it. It's a command from God. You can say that. If you're one of those, oh, I only do what God tells me to do. Go have fun. He's telling you to do it. For those of us who aren't married this morning, this is a call to community. It's a call to companionship. That friendship is a gift. 
Companionship is a gift. Enjoy your friends. Enjoy your missional community. Enjoy it. It's a good gift of God. You're lonely right now? Yes. Enjoy the friendship that God's given you. You're not married. You want to be married? Enjoy the people God's put in your life. Enjoy it. Step four. Verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, the place of the dead, to which you are going. You know what he's saying here? So first, step one, have a dinner. Have, a, have people over for dinner. Have a good meal. Step two, take care of yourself. Step three, get married and enjoy life with your spouse. Step four, be passionate about your work. Listen, there's this book, one of my favorite books. It's written by a guy named Wendell Berry, and it's a book called Jaber Crow. And he comes to know Christ, and in it, immediately, like probably some of us, he had a great turning experience, a great repentance and conversion. And he said, I must be called to the ministry. I must be called to preach the gospel. God save me. And he's done this miraculous thing in my life. And he goes off to kind of like the seminary training school. And while he's there, he starts cutting people's hair to help make money and to help provide for his education. And the most fascinating thing happens is by the end of his seminary time, he realized I think I'm called by God to be a barber. Vocation, voca, means to call. Your vocation is a calling. Now, all of us are called to make disciples. All of us are called to love God. All of us are called to serve in ministry in some way. My job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Your job is to do ministry. But some of that ministry, much of that ministry, might be done in a barber's chair, might be done on a work you know, a, a, a workplace floor, not necessarily in the walls of a church building. And Solomon says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. He's saying, whatever your hand finds to do. See, this is what hopefully zero to 20 into our 30s, this is what we're meant to do. What, is my, what's, what's, what does my hand find to do? What's good? What am I good at? And then we put in the work. It's said that it takes 10,000 hours invested into something to become an expert at it. See, that's what our 20s and 30s is all about. You find what your hand finds to do, you get after it, you put the time in. You find what you excel at and you throw yourself into it. See what kind of entrepreneur you can be. See what kind of songwriter you can be. See what kind of stay-at-home mom you can be. See, our world needs your creativity your unique contribution to the world, now not driven by your selfish ambition, rather led by the Spirit of God for the glory of God. I got a long quote here. Robert Capon. Why do we marry? Why take friends and lovers? Why give ourselves to music, painting, chemistry, or cooking? Out of simple delight in the resonant goodness of creation, of course, but out of more than that too. Half of earth's gorgeousness lies hidden in the glimpsed city it longs to become. 
For all its rooted holiness, the world has no continuing city here. It is an outlandish place, a foreign home, a session in via to a better version of itself. And it is our glory to see it so and thirst until Jerusalem comes home at last. We are given appetites. Look, not to consume the world and forget it, but to taste its goodness and hunger to make it great. See, if you know the story of God, he created everything really good. We broke it and it, we fell into sin and sin was cursed. Jesus Christ has come and he's redeemed us. And look, he is making all things new. That's what he's talking about there. Jerusalem to come. That there's a city of God coming down from heaven and earth is going to meet heaven. Revelation 21. We're going to be preaching through the whole book of Revelation coming up in the fall. I look forward to that. Heavens come down. Earth comes up. The, we get a new heavens and a new earth. And this in this new heavens and new earth is Jerusalem. It's the great city. And so Capon is saying, when we're working hard, we can taste the goodness of our work while longing for something better and looking in the future for something better and saying, I'm working kind of towards that. I want this world to be more like that world. We're working for justice. We're working for these good things now because it's coming in the future. So four steps, have a dinner party, right? Don't let yourself go. <clears throat> Enjoy life with your spouse. Four, be passionate about your work. Look at verse 11 and 12. Again, I saw under the sun, the race is not to the swift. Some people win. They're not the best athletes, nor the battle to the strong. Strong doesn't always win, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance. This is what he's talking about, death. Death comes to us all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught up in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when suddenly falls on them. Here's what Solomon's saying, and I'm closing. The record. Death is coming to us all. The question is, how will you live today to make sure your death is not in vain? The fool lives like they're never going to die. The immature live life trying to keep their life. They put themselves at the center and try to do everything in their power to keep things under their control, to keep death outside the walls of their own heart. But Jesus says this in Matthew 16 and in Luke 17. He says this, quote, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Listen, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. What Jesus is saying here is that those who follow Christ give up trying to keep living life on their own terms. 
with themselves at the center. When we follow Christ, we put Christ at the center of our lives and we choose, look, to lay down our lives for others. This is the lesson we need to learn. We need to learn how to lose our life for Christ's sake to find our real life that is in Christ. Now, how do we do that? I hinted to it in the beginning of this sermon. Your 30s and your 40s, this is a time where you're learning how to give yourself away, to lay your life down for your family, to lay your life down for your church, to lay your life down for God. I got this one last quote from Indy Wilson in his book, one of my favorite books of all time called Death by Living. He says this, death is now. The choice is here. Lay your life down. Your heartbeats cannot be hoarded. Your reservoir of breaths is draining away. You have hands, blister them while you can. You have bones, make them strain. They can carry nothing in the grave. You have lungs, let them spill with laughter. Listen, Jesus rose from the dead, not just to get us into heaven when we die, but to get heaven into us in the here and now so that we could enjoy the life God has given us. We could squeeze out every little pleasure of grace as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. All of these good gifts are refreshments to our soul. Are you enjoying them? Are you? To despise the gift, it's to despise the giver. Listen, you can, Solomon's saying, don't just sit down and just gulp in that food. I just need the calories. I'm hungry. I, I got to get more done. No, enjoy it. Many of us with this Western mindset, we're just pushing hard and we're just consuming and we're just out there gaining and gaining and gaining and we're not enjoying the life God's given us. To the student, oh, I'm gonna enjoy it once, I'm, once I graduate. To the parent, I'm gonna enjoy it once they're out of the house. To the working, I'm gonna enjoy it once I retire. No, God says, enjoy it now. This is what makes Christians different. Enjoy it now in the face of the reality of death, knowing that Christ has been resurrected once and for all. And then what's interesting, C.S. Lewis kind of alluded to it earlier. This is why God, Jesus Christ, gave us the Lord's Supper, bread and wine, physical things, and we come down with our physical bodies and our physical hands and we open up our hands in a receptive posture and we bring nothing to him but the, our sins, right? And what does he do? He doesn't judge us. He's already judged Christ. What does he do? He puts the broken body and the blood of Jesus Christ into our hands. And what do we do? We take it into our bodies and into our mouth. And this is a physical meal of grace. We're meant to enjoy the grace of God in this moment. This is why we do it every week. Enjoy grace. God was crucified for me. 
to cleanse me of all my sin, to bring me into this new realm of humanity where now I can enjoy my life here with hope for the future. If you're not a believer this morning, we invite you into that. We're not inviting you to be more spiritual. We're not inviting you to be more religious. Everyone is already a spirit that was created to live forever. You can't be more spiritual than that. The reality is you're going to live in two places. You're going to live with God or away from God. We want you to live with God. And what it takes, put your faith in Jesus Christ. Enjoy the life you've been given. I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you. It seems so odd sometimes that we've been programmed in this culture to think that you only want stuff for our soul. You only want spiritual things for us. When we look at the story, we look at Genesis, we look at Jesus, we're reminded you've given us good gifts. We're meant to enjoy those good gifts. Thank you for being a kind and gracious and loving Father who gives us these things. May we not spurn your gifts and spurn you in the process. Would you speak grace to us even now? As we come this morning, we confess our sins. We either want to worship things of the world or we want to kind of turn away from them and not really enjoy them the way that we we should. Would you bring us to repentance? Would you convict us of our sin? As we come to you this morning, would you once again remind us that you have made us right with God? We thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.